Today on Blue 58, the Packers were humbled in New York, falling on their face against the Giants. What, if anything, do we take out of this disaster of a game? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I'm happy to be with you here for another episode. Just a reminder, we are raising fund for Aaron, funds for Aaron Jones' ANA All the Way Foundation. Check out thepowersweep.com for full details little banner there you can click right at the top of the page. That'll get you straightened out, sent where you need to go to get all that stuff handled for this year. Speaking of getting handled, the Packers failed to handle their business or got handled by the New York Giants or any way you want to use handled. The Packers either did or did not do the handling in this game that resulted in the frankly embarrassing loss to the New York Giants. Big old bucket of cold water, wasn't it? Everything that was good about the last few weeks suddenly seems pretty bad. Jordan Love looks pretty mortal all of a sudden. The defense, while it's been good for most of the past five weeks or so, pretty beatable when Tommy DeVito is running the show for the Giants. The receivers, uninspiring, I think to say the least, outside of Jaden Reed. Nobody really acquitting themselves particularly in particularly exciting fashion, let's put it that way. You get the big catch from Tucker Craft down the seam. Other than that, a rough day for just about everybody on the Packers offense. Matt LaFleur said and has said a lot this year that this league has a way of humbling you fast. And I think this is the case in point for what that remark actually means. I don't know what to make of this game from the long-term perspective. I think there there are some good things that happen in this game. Sure, not a lot of good things. Maybe not any big overall trends that we can talk about as being, you know, indicative of where the Packers are or are trying to get to. But there is some good out there. We'll talk about it. However, what I want to make sure happens, or at least where I want to put down my flag on this game, is kind of the anti-burn-the-tape take. I think there's going to be a temptation to try to get past this one really quickly, to just say, well, it was an aberration, it was this, that, or the other thing. It was it, it's just, it was just one game, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Maybe that's true, but I think the Packers, as much as they can, need to take caution against moving ahead on this one too quickly. This strikes me as a situation where the Packers need to take a long, hard look at what went wrong here and really sit with this loss for a minute. Because unlike many of their other losses this season, this is a game they should have won. This is a game where they were favorites, where they were playing a team they matched up with pretty well. This team uses an approach that the Packers have beaten before. It's a team that they should have beaten. It's a team that they were well-equipped and well-positioned to beat, and they could not do it. They couldn't seal the deal, and they need to sit and ask themselves long, hard questions about why that is. It's not good enough to just say, eh, this was just not that, this was, it's one game. In, In the grand scheme of things, how big a deal is one game? That is true in a way. But this Packers team hasn't yet earned the right, I think, to dismiss any one game. Because if we're going to sit here and talk about the Packers over the past four weeks or three weeks or whatever, 
winning games and saying that is something they need to build on or that is that is who they are. If they have a game like this against a team as bad as the Giants, the data set is small enough here that we really have to have a conversation about what it says about who the Packers are, at least if you want to do the long-term storylines. If you want to say the Packers were you know, this good for this long or they, they were playing this well over five weeks, that's who they are. Okay, then why weren't they like that this week? Why did Jordan Love fall back to earth so hard? Why did the pass rush fall short so frequently? Why did Tommy DeVito, I'm not going to finish that sentence, just kind of fill it in yourself. Why did Tommy DeVito? Why did he do all the things that he did? Why did the thoroughly uninspiring Wandale Robinson to this point in his career suddenly look like, well, (laughs) in some ways a souped up version of Jaden Reed? Why did he look like their version of our guy, the do-it-all-for-you-gadget player who can find a hole in your secondary or get to the edge or do whatever, where did that come from? Why is that allowed to happen? I don't have answers to a lot of these things. There's going to be a lot of questions, hypothetical, rhetorical questions in this episode. But I think that is what needs to happen here. There needs to be a lot of why after this game. If you're talking about yourself as a team, I guess Jair Alexander's words that can run the table, if you fall down on national television, Monday Night Football is supposed to be one of the premier games of the week, and you lose to the Giants, who, as they pointed out in the broadcast, as I talked about on the, the preview podcast, have gotten embarrassed as much as they've done anything well this year. For every good game they've had, they've had one that was twice as embarrassing. Just ask the Dallas Cowboys how their matchups against the the New York Giants are going, or have gone. This is the game that you can't just sweep under the rug, especially when you've got games against pretty comparable opponents here coming up in the pretty near future, like, for instance, next week. So let's talk through some of the good and bad from this one. Let's talk, as we always do, about the good things. There were some good things in this one. Not just tons of them, but there there were some good things. I think we start with Jaden Reed. What an exciting player he has been as the second-round pick, one of the Packers' two second-round picks this year. He is able to do things. The Packers are able to use him in ways that will make him a central part of the offense as a rookie. Not since, I guess, Christian Watson's really otherworldly hot streak have we seen something like that. And even then, it seems like his success was different from what we're seeing from Reed because Reed's, to the extent that he's involved in the offense, it seems really designed for him. The Packers really want to make sure he is touching the ball, which is exciting because you start thinking about ways that it can get even better, ways that they can get him more involved, or ways that you know you can get additional support for him to help him do the things that he is doing better more consistently, um, put him in position to just do those things. It it seems like they are really building something good with Jaden Reed. It's unfortunately that it's unfortunate that they had to make him just the entire offense in this game, which is, which really shows up in his poor receiving numbers, eight targets for like 20 something yards or eight catches rather for like 20 something yards on 10 targets just a completely horizontal passing game for, for Jaden Reed and the Packers 
in this one, but I'm encouraged that they were making him kind of the focal point of the offense. Also encouraged to see Carrington Valentine playing to the whistle. Now, I've seen guys fall down for no reason. I've seen guys fumble for no reason. I, I haven't seen before what we saw from Saquon Barkley in this one, a guy who falls down and fumbles for basically no reason. Whether he'd seen it or not before, I don't know. But what we do know is that Carrington Valentine didn't wait around for somebody to tell him what to do. He saw the ball on the ground. He realized he had not heard a whistle yet, and he picked it up and started running with it, which is the best thing that you can possibly do. And it set up the Packers in good position for making what was at the time the go-ahead score. Now, in retrospect, it would have kind of been nice if the Packers maybe had to go a little bit farther on that drive and ended up burning more clock because they left plenty of time on the clock for Tommy DeVito. And as people have been saying for literally one night now, you just can't leave Tommy DeVito too much time. He's going to beat you every time he's playing against Joe Barry as the defensive coordinator. That's the age-old NFL wisdom. Never bet against Tommy DeVito when he's going up against Joe Barry. Everybody knows that. In any case, Valentine leaves it all out on the field, getting what he can after an unexpected play, bounces right into his lap. He turns it around for a 51-yard return for the Packers and at least gets the Packers in position to take the lead there. And they did for a little while, but they still did. It still counts. Well, it counts that they led. It didn't ultimately end up counting for much, but you understand what we're saying here. This, this is the category of good thing we're on. And finally, I guess that last offensive drive. The Packers making it happen there down the stretch, probably right up there with their best drives of the game, realizing they had to have a touchdown and realizing at the end they had two shots to get it in there, getting as much as they could on what could have been the the second to last shot there, but Heath manages to get the ball over the end zone or the end line, and the Packers score to go up. That was an encouraging thing to see, if only because of the the situation of the game. Things had not been going well. Jordan Love had not been having a, a, a great evening, but they get it together for one drive and give the Packers the lead, however short-lived it may have been. Now, the bad stuff. It was admittedly challenging to limit it to three. The defensive part of this is where it's going to really get tricky, but let's leave that for the end. First, I want to talk about special teams, anything but special. How were the, the how many different ways were the Packers special teams not special in this game? Well, first, you've got penalty. You've got Anthony Johnson committing a penalty to put the Packers deep in their own territory after a punt. Then on the ensuing punt, when the Packers go three and out, you've got Rudy Ford committing a penalty to set the the Giants up with good, well, even better field position than they would have had after the Packers punted after a fumble of their, or not a fumble, a penalty of their own. That was bad enough. But then you have Keyshawn Nixon muffing a, a punt, and then instead of just falling on it, he falls down, but then gets up and tries to run with the ball and fumbles the ball again, giving the ball to the Giants, leading to a Giants touchdown. You've got Anders Carlson missing a kick. Between that and the Nixon play, 10-point swing right there. That's basically the game just on those two plays. It's The margin is just that thin in the NFL. So to repeat an oft-used line, the special teams 
<laughs> Anything but special in this one. Then Jordan Love. It, it just was a bad game. And there are going to be bad games. I don't, as much as I said, I, I don't want to make this game any part of a larger trend or say it's derailing any any larger trend. You can find really good five-game stretches from some pretty bad quarterbacks. I did it this week for my picks column at thepowersweep.com and on Patreon and Substack if you subscribe those places. But I, I pointed out that as good as love's been over the past five weeks, five weeks does not get you a spot in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Baker Mayfield had a statistically comparable stretch as a rookie. Daniel Jones did as well. Jared Goff had a run last year over five games that it was even better than what we've seen from Love the previous size five weeks, to say nothing of tonight. It just was not a great game. The play on which he fumbled, it looked like he misread his blocks. He probably should have just followed Tucker Craft to the sideline, given where they were in the down and distance. Just keep stretching the play out and get the first down that way. He follows that up with a, a bad interception, and I think play design had something to do with that. Dontavian Wicks was running something like a what looked like a, a wheel route to me uh, on the broadcast after some motion. He, end, it's, he ends up going vertically down the field, but he, he ends up doing it, as Troy Aikman says, very far into the field, inside the numbers at points. That opens you up, or, or at least makes it much easier for the defensive back, the, the deep defensive backs, to cover you and cover what you're trying to do there. That leads to the love pick, at least in part. Still not a great throw. Almost looked like the defensive back was catching a punt there, just waiting for the ball to catch, come down. And it does seem like wind was a factor tonight, but everybody's got to play in the elements the same way. You just got to change what you're going to do if you know that the wind is going to be that much of a factor. And if it was affecting his throws that much, I think it just, it makes that decision to go deep worse, not more understandable. And then you've got Love Sack setting up the, the Daniel, or not the Daniel Carlson, the Anders Carlson missed field goal. Now, it was still a very makeable distance, 38 yards, something like that, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, don't have the exact distance in front of me. It, it was a makeable kick for Carlson, given what we've seen from his leg so far this year. And yet it was harder than it needed to be because of Love's sack. He probably should have stepped up and tried to run. Unfortunately, it looked like on, on that particular play that John Runyon getting knocked to the ground made it all but impossible for Love to, to set up, step up and run. Not absolving love entirely there, so maybe a little bit out of his control, but another in a series of bad plays for love that I think helped derail this game and, and really give give the Giants a chance to come away with a win in this one. Finally, I I went back and forth on the wording on this one, but I think just situational defense was a problem. A bunch of different situations. The pass rush was the biggest disappointment in this game. Now, the offense didn't play well. The defense, as a entire unit, did not play well. But the thing that's worst to me out of everything that we saw tonight was how bad the Packers' pass rush was. As we said in the preview, as I think just about everybody has said around Packers' corners of the Internet, Tommy DeVito takes a bunch of sacks. 
he's basically a walking sack. He will run himself into them. He will take sacks because he's got a bad offensive line, a historically bad offensive line for the New York Giants. And yet, how many sacks did the Packers record tonight? A grand total of zero to go with an enormous total of two quarterback hits for the entire team. Now, DeVito does a lot of things to take himself out of the game. He runs himself into bad spots. He is more mobile or or more quick to run, put it that way, than he probably needs to be. And yet, the Packers were not able to get a hand on him in a meaningful way over the course of the night. there's, There's really no other way to put it. They just could not rush the passer effectively in any meaningful way. The Packers also seemed uniquely unprepared for Danny. Uh, Danny, I knew I was going to do it at some point. It, there it is. They were uniquely unprepared for Tommy DeVito's scrambling in this game. Just watching from the broadcast, I would guess the Packers played a little bit more man defense than they usually do, which is not an unsound strategy playing against a team where they don't have a ton of like big playmaking receivers. However, it does open you up to to a scrambling quarterback. And Tommy DeVito, not Danny, Tommy DeVito, is uh, is that, if nothing else. The Packers may have just opened the door unnecessarily to what he happens to do pretty well, and that was a big reason the Packers were sunk in this one, 71 yards on the ground from DeVito. Then the run defense. During the broadcast, Troy Aikman and Joe Buck as loopy as they were throughout the broadcast tonight. And, man, they were both on one tonight. Joe Buck just was silly at times almost, the the, the level of detachment in this one. Maybe it's just been so long since we've seen them regularly. Just We don't get them every weekend on, on Fox anymore. They're only on Monday Night Football. Just not familiar with how he is anymore. But it just didn't seem, it, it like almost seemed punch drunk or something. I don't know. Anyway... They were talking on the broadcast about how the Packers had contained Saquon Barkley, and that's maybe true, but in the overall volume, the 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 Giants ended up doing pretty well, and they had three different guys with a run of at least 26 yards. You're ripping off chunks of yardage that big. It, it really doesn't matter almost what you do on the other plays because that gets you in position basically to score, especially if you're starting out with good field position, as the Giants frequently did in this one. So the big question, what does it all mean? The Packers were good then, then meaning the past few weeks. Are they bad now? Does it mean something else? I think it means something that we all kind of know intuitively. The Packers just aren't there yet. Wherever they are going, whatever they're trying to become, as this version of the Green Bay Packers, they are not it yet. Nobody's perfect, of course, but they should have handled the Giants. This is a game that they should have won, and perhaps more importantly, had every opportunity to win. Many opportunities to do things better in this game that would have won the game for them outright. You wouldn't have needed a clutch drive late. You wouldn't have needed... To, to try to stop the the Giants and Tommy DeVito on their last game-winning drive attempt. If you just take care of business throughout the game, you don't have to do those things. And the Packers were unable to take care of business, so the question then becomes, why? 
Is it a question of not playing your own game and just trying to play to the level of your opponent or maybe not even trying to play to the level of your opponent, just doing it because you're unable to stick to who you are as a team? I think there's probably a lot to that idea. The Packers are not firm enough in their own identity right now to just roll the ball out and say, look, this is what we're going to do. This is who we are. These are who our playmakers are. These are This is our quarterback. Here's what he does really well. Here's where we help him do better at the things that he doesn't do so well. The Packers are still figuring things out, and you're going to see games like this from time to time. The good news is, I think, that there's another opportunity to have a game very like this coming up just next week. The Packers have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just, what is it, five days from now, six days from now? This coming Sunday, put it that way. And they can again win a game that they are supposed to win. The Buccaneers are, I don't even, I can't honestly say that I know. They should be better than the Giants. They're probably better than the Giants, right? Whether they are or not, I guess maybe doesn't really matter all that much. They are a probably bottom third team in the NFL. Let's put it that way. Bottom third to bottom quarter team in the NFL. Not a playoff contender, although everybody's kind of nominally a contender right now. Not anybody who's going to just run away with the with the NFC South or anything like that. Though, again, nobody's really running away with the MB- NFC South right now. And, and technically, as of today, the, the Buccaneers are in first with a record of 6-7. and seven, But everybody's 6-7 and seven in that division other than the Carolina Panthers. So not, a, not an NFL juggernaut, let's put it that way. But neither are the Packers, who will also come into this game at 6 and 7. So the Packers have another opportunity to win a game that they should win, to win a game against a, another team that's trying to figure out who they are. And who the Packers are, I think, is going to be an open question for some time. When it's going really well, it's easy to sit down and say, well, obviously this is who we are. But I think this week reminds us that sometimes things go badly and you have to ask yourself the question, is this who we are? Is it possible that the other stuff was the outlier and this is the real story? Maybe your answer is no. Looking at this game, I think that could be a fair answer to just say that this thing and that thing and this, that, and the other thing happened and that proves that, you know, it was an outlier, that the other games are closer to who we are or at least who we want to be than this game right now. And I don't know who would ever have this as what they want to be, but I think you you understand the point. The Packers are not yet what they are trying to become, and the difference between where they are now and where they hope to be someday is still going to show up sometimes if an opponent is skilled enough to take advantage of that. Let's talk about the Packers' rookies. Lucas Van Ness leads things off. One tackle, one assist tonight. Narrowly missed out on a sack. Would have been the Packers' only sack of the night. Instead, it goes down for as a, a gain of just about one yard. But he continues to to play with his hand on the ground a little bit more, which is, I think, an encouraging sign. Uh, just something that we didn't see a lot from him early in the season. He's getting more opportunities to do that throughout the course of the year. Luke Musgrave, of course, still hurt. Jaden Reed... Busy, busy, busy day. Uh, probably went to the well a little bit too often with some of the stuff they were doing for him. 
although given how the rest of the offense was playing, you can't really blame Matt LaFleur too, for that too much. Tucker Craft, four catches for 64 yards. It really feels like the Packers have two tight ends now, at least when, when Luke Musgrave is, is back. Tucker Craft really seems to have a role on this team. And he's starting to play like the guy that we saw on tape, just like shucking off smaller defensive backs as he gallivants through the secondary. His size and strength are evident whenever he has the ball in his hand. Colby Wooden had two solo tackles. Sean Clifford had a DNP. Dontavian Wicks had a bit of a rough night. Two catches for 20 yards on six targets. We were dinging Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs for that kind of stat line earlier this season. I think we got to bring it up with Wicks too. Not what we have become accustomed to seeing from him. And of course, he had a little bit of an injury concern late in this game too. So perhaps a little bit of injury added to insult. Um, if he turns out to be hurt and unavailable in the relatively near future. Carl Brooks, one assist, one tackle. Anders Carlson did miss that one field goal today, was solid otherwise for the rest of the night. Carrington Valentine, Johnny on the spot on the fumble return, four solo tackles in this one. Yeah, he's taken his lumps too in the secondary, but I think given where the Packers are as a team, it doesn't hurt to let him get worked a little bit from time to time because perhaps he just becomes that much better as a result in the future. Not saying it it will happen, but it can. And just seeing more things as a defensive back is always going to be a good thing. Anthony Johnson Jr., no tackles, did have that one bad penalty. And then on our undrafted free agent category, Malik Heath scores his first career touchdown. Emmanuel Wilson still hurt and not available today. Brenton Cox gets the healthy scratch. And Ben Sims records no stats, but did play today. A couple random thoughts and observations. We will send you on your merry way a not victory Tuesday, not even just a Tuesday, just a Tuesday coming up here tomorrow slash today as we finish recording here. We will send you on your way for for your Tuesday here with uh, just a couple random observations and questions too remarkable, I thought, uniform night. Giants throwbacks look fantastic. Should be their full-time set, in my opinion. You could update the helmet, too, if you wouldn't want if you want to. Wouldn't necessarily have to, though this is a second shell look for the Giants, a little bit darker blue helmet than they typically wear. Uh, not not uh, glossy or sparkly. Well, it is glossy. It's not sparkly as their, their typical uh, blue helmet is. But, man, no complaints about this uniform. Great look for the for the New York Giants. Hope they continue to bring that one out as often as they possibly can. And the Packers look great in contrast there. Just some great colors, great primary colors there. Red, blue, yellow, and green. Great, 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 great stuff. Christian Watson, uh, out in this game, out for this game with the hamstring issue that he uh, that popped up for him late in the Kansas City Chiefs game. Initially, I balked at the idea that he would have had a big impact on this game. However, thinking about it more, I think it's possible that he fills an important role that the Packers just are not able to duplicate if he's not out there, especially if they have Jaden Reed doing what they're what he was doing in this game a lot. There was a lot of horizontal Jaden Reed in this game, and I'm kind of harping on Reed here because he's the only other person other than Watson, who I think regularly gets down the field in the passing game. Well, with Watson out and Jaden Reed going sideways most of the time, who is the deep threat on the Packers? 
there really isn't one. If he was healthy, if he were healthy, it would be Luke Musgrave. Tucker Craft did have the big catch and run tonight for 43 yards. That doesn't seem like a particularly sustainable offensive strategy. We just want to get Tucker Craft open deep is not something anybody's really clamoring for. So they need Christian Watson, I guess, from that respect. I, I guess that's where I'm trying to get to here. Even if he's not having a huge statistical impact, even if he's not at full strength uh, physically, he gives the Packers something that they don't have without him, which is just straight, pure, deep speed. Will he come back this year? Doesn't seem like it's going to be a short-term sort of thing, which brings up some additional questions and concerns about Watson's long-term future as he continues to kind of be on the bubble between just a a small, low-end role-playing guy and one of your main contributors on offense. Wanted to mention, speaking of role players, a couple role players that had an interesting couple of games for themselves tonight. Patrick Taylor continues to be very strong in his time back from the Patriots. He should have gone out of bounds on that play in the first half. He just should have. He was running toward the sideline, decided not to, ends up costing the Packers time. Not great situational awareness there. However, he finishes with four catches for 30 yards, four carries, excuse me, for 30 yards, two catches for 22 yards. He is a reliable part of the Packers' offense right now, even if he stays in bounds more than he should sometimes. Still, for your, I guess, essentially fourth choice at running back behind Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon and Emmanuel Wilson, you're getting some pretty good stuff out of Patrick Taylor, and he has earned himself every bit of playing time that he gets with the Packers right now. Speaking of guys coming off the bench, Samori Ture, inactive in four of the Packers' last five games, only played three snaps against the Lions, Comes up today with two catches for 22 yards in his first significant action in a long, long time. Want to close it out today with uh, a rules thing and then a shout out to a very dedicated listener um, overseas. The rules stuff I wanted to talk about was uh, the Malik Heath catch. Why was the first catch in the end zone not a catch? Here is... Something I feel like we can add to the discussion here. Way too often, I think, discussions about rules take place absent the actual text of the rules. So here is the actual NFL rule on what constitutes a catch. Article 7, player possession. And I'm just going to read it here. It's like three or four sentences, so it gets a little bit wordy, but I think this is important to know and hear from time to time. The rule book says, and I quote, a player is in possession when he is inbounds and has control of the ball with his hands or arms. To gain possession of a loose ball that has been caught, intercepted, or recovered, a player must have complete control of the ball with his hands or arms and have both feet or any other part of his body other than his hands completely on the ground, inbounds, and after the first two parts, A and B they're labeled, have been fulfilled, Perform any act common to the game. Example, tucking the ball away, extending it forward, taking an additional step, turning up field, or avoiding or warding off an opponent. It is not necessary that he commit such an act, provided that he maintains control of the ball long enough to do so. 
This rule applies in the field of play at the sideline and in the end zone. So ending the quote there, there are basically three elements when it comes to a catch, getting your hands on the ball, getting your feet or another body part inbounds. And then the third thing, which the, the rules analyst working Monday night football tonight boiled down succinctly, I thought to just the time element. So basically, you have to get your hands on the ball, get your feet in bounds, and then some element of time has to pass. And there's a bunch of different things that can signify that time passing, the act common to the game. So tucking the ball away, moving it around while you have control of it, taking an additional step. That's why the third step line of thinking came up a bunch of times between Joe Buck and the rules guy, turning up field, avoiding or warding off an opponent. They're saying that when Heath did not make the catch, he did not satisfy basically the time requirement of the catch. In the second catch, the very next play, they said that he did, and that as he had the ball under his control, it passed the goal line, and voila, you have a touchdown. Those rules are obviously very open to interpretation. I don't know how you would really do it a lot differently, though. The elements seem to make sense to me. Hands on the ball, in your control, feet on the ground or another body part on the ground that makes you inbounds, and then a third thing, the time element, the act common to the game. I think time is better, a better explanation than the, than the act common to the game, but I think they, they kind of get at the same thing. you got to get your hands on the ball, get your feet on the ground, and then do something with the ball. That seems pretty common sense to me. We can debate until the cows come home whether or not Heath satisfied that third portion on that, that drop catch. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, for the academic discussion, he ends up making it into the end zone anyway, so it's kind of a moot point. But it's a discussion that's worth having the facts about, which is why I spend this time going over the rules aside in this situation. Finally, one end with a shout-out. He goes by Serb Packer in our Discord server, I know we've got international listeners all over the world. Maybe it's later where you are. Maybe you got up earlier, whatever. Our friend from Serbia was up all night long. The Packers game ends at 5.30 a.m. local time. And he says, all right, now I got to go to bed. Buddy, I'm just up for the day at that point. Uh, We'll go with an all-nighter and uh, just got to applaud the commitment there. Great work. And it's, it's a good reminder that even when things don't go the Packers' way, this is all supposed to be fun. We're doing this for fun. None of us has any control over what happens out there. So we're, we just got to do what you know helps us enjoy it regardless. So if that's staying up late for you, if that's watching the condensed version first thing in the morning, if it's just getting real mad and yelling about stuff online, well, maybe walk that part back a little bit. But just have some fun. This should still be fun. It should still be fun enough that you can stay up until 5.30 a.m. watching this really silly game that we all like to watch together. If you're having fun, even if the Packers aren't winning, I think you're doing it right. So let's try to keep having fun regardless of what the outcome is for the Packers. So I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it if you took a second and headed to thepowersweep.com and checked out our fundraiser. The banner's at the top. Click on it. It's going to get you all the information you need to know about the ANA All the Way Foundation. That's what we're supporting this year. Go ahead. Donate. You'll be 
you know, automatically entered for some great prizes this year. And uh, I'm really thankful for all of you continuing to help us make that happen. If you like stuff like that, do me a favor and share this episode. That's going to help more people get in tune with that fundraiser and also get more people listening and joining this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.